people would say, this is terrible, Yafa, um, we, we sympathize with you, but you're strong. And that hit me a little bit because I'm like, yes, but no, in this incident, I'm not strong. Right now, it's my mom who is in prison. So I don't even have to be strong for that. It's okay not to be strong. Welcome to the Yellow Let's Talk show slash podcast. Today, we have Yafa Jarrar with us, where we're going to have some helpful but very fun conversations. So Yafa is a Palestinian-Canadian labor and employment lawyer. She has been involved in the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement since 2005. And Yafa's mother, Khalida Jarrar, is an elected member of the Palestinian Legislative Council and was a political prisoner in an Israeli prison. Over the years, Yaffa has seen the violent arrests of her parents, both of whom were political prisoners in Israel for many years. Yaffa is an outspoken individual coming from a family of activists and ad advocates and has never shied away from condemning the Israeli occupation and apartheid over Palestine and often speaks for Palestinians all around the globe. Above all, Yaffa is a genuinely, genuinely awesome person and a dear friend of mine. So please welcome Yafa. Thank you so much, Hani, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here. So you lived under an occupation in Palestine. How would you describe living in Palestine versus transitioning and moving to Canada? Um, so this is a beast of a question. Um, I'll try to, uh, to address it um, as brief as I can. Um, I moved to Canada in 2003, and uh, I was 17 at the time, so don't do the math because that's just going to tell you how old I am right now. Um, and I came by myself. I came on a scholarship um, to attend uh, Lester B. Pearson College of the, of the Pacific, which is one of the colleges that's part of the United World Colleges. They had the IB program. At the time, the IB program wasn't as popular as it was, as it is today. Um, so my uh, teachers and principal at the school that I was at in Palestine, I'm, I, I live in the city of Ramallah in, in Palestine, uh, they approached me and encouraged me to apply. Um, so I applied and there's a selection committee and um, anyway, I ended up being selected um, to attend and um, I chose Canada um, as the country to attend. Um, for, for so reason. why did you choose Canada? So that's a, another story actually that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us. Um, the rules, so basically this competition was done um, amongst many, many Palestinian uh, students in high school. Um, and they were going to select 10 people in general uh, to go to, to send them to 10 different United World Colleges around the world, right? Um, there were, at the time, there were, I, th I believe, 12 of them around the world. Canada was one of the countries. Now, in the application, there's an exam, an application, all of that. They ask you to, um, in a list, to list your preferences as to where you want to go. And depending on how you score, the top person will get their first choice. The second person will get their, you know, second and, and what have you, and then the rest will be assigned. So in the application, I put my first choice, United States, my second choice, Italy, and my third choice, Norway. Um, I didn't put Canada at all. And oh, I, when they, when we've gone through the whole interview process and exam, it was a long process. Um, I was told by the Ministry of Education that I scored first. So I was like, great, I'm going to America, right? Because as a 17-year-old at the time, that was the dream. It's the American dream. Exactly, is to go to the U.S. Now, they called me and said, congratulations, you're going to Canada. And I said, I'm confused. You said, if you score first, you get your first choice. And they said, well, there have been some technical issues. They came up with this excuse, didn't make sense to me. I find out later, so I didn't really question it. I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to Canada. I, I kind of was a little bit upset actually. 
years later, I find out that my dad actually, behind my back, <laughs> told them, um, under no circumstances, I'm sending her to the United States. <laughs> um, and I'm only going to, you know, um, agree to, to Yafa going only if she goes to Canada. Wait, wait, wait. Why did he not want you to go to the U.S.? Okay, so um, my dad's never left Palestine in his life because he's... Uh, he was a political prisoner for many years, and as uh, part of a collective punishment, Israel doesn't allow him to travel, and that's a punishment that many Palestinians face. So he's one of those people. He's never left Palestine. Um, I think he 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 thought I would have a better um, quality of life in Canada. Um, he kept going and going on and on about the. Uh, the welfare state and uh, the healthcare system and all of that kind of stuff, you know, the, the aspects in Canada that now we're fighting to make better or keep even that are under threat. So uh, from his perspective to, first of all, for my, both my parents to send a 17 year old by myself to go for two years to live somewhere else um, that we have zero connection to um, and they are not allowed to travel. So they can't be hop on a plane and come visit me is a very challenging thing. Mm -hmm. But they really wanted me to go at the time because um, it was during the second intifada in Palestine. And um, most of the time, my city and other cities in the West Bank were under complete military invasion by the Israelis. We used to actually, I used to climb behind behind um, walls and in the through the backyard to get to school because there would be soldier, soldiers on the street. So we would sneak in to get to school safely. Um, so they wanted me to have a safer, better way to receive my education. Okay. And Canada was the acceptable place for them. For so Sunday. for your parents, it was more about what they perceived to be a safe place. And they saw Canada yeah. to be that. I do agree. Canada is a great place to be. So, you know, props to mom and dad. <laughs> Um, you mentioned a few things, and the question I was asking was about how is it like to live under an occupation, and you already uh, touched on it as a collective punishment for people who are, are in prison, they cannot travel. Can you tell us a little more about your experiences living in Palestine? Right. Um, so usually when I get this question, um, or at least when I first moved here, it was a confusing question because that's the only life I knew. So when people told me, tell us how it's like to live in Palestine, it's, it's the only thing I knew. And for me, it was normal. Um, so again, things like um, going through military checkpoints on a regular basis is just part of our life, right? Um, that's something that we do. There's an Israeli military checkpoint between every city and every city and village and every village and village in Palestine. You can't drive for more than 40 minutes in a car without being stopped. And, and what exactly is a checkpoint? Is a, a checkpoint basically is um, a, a military kind of temporary or permanent base for Israeli soldiers who are fully armed to um, stop Palestinian cars or pedestrians, check for their IDs, and many times they would arrest people at checkpoints, right? The whole purpose of them uh, they, Israel justifies it as a security measure. Uh, I'm not sure security for whom, but um, the only thing that checkpoints do is to just keep Palestinians under complete military control um, and to continue with their apartheid policies and to keep us fragmented from each other. Okay, and so that's a, a way for them to uh, have a control and continue to oppress the Palestinians. I want to know, is this the same, does this rule apply to Israelis? Do they have checkpoints as well? No. So it's just for Palestinians, okay. I wonder why people still do not consider this an apartheid. Yeah, and I mean, now it's much, much harder for people to reject the idea, or not the idea, the fact that the Israeli regime as it exists today is an apartheid regime. And when we talk about it this way, that's exactly it. Your question, does this apply to everybody or just Palestinians? This is a very simple yet um, accurate way to describe apartheid. It's a legal system where the practices of that system apply to certain people and not others based on their race, religion, nationality, etc. Um, so it's rooted in racism. It's rooted in discrimination. Um, yeah, and, and checkpoints is just one example that actually demonstrates 
that that apartheid does exist and it is apartheid. And I like how you just said it's one example of many examples. And as a Palestinian growing up there, having parents who are activists and advocates uh, for liberation, I want to know more about the trauma as a young Palestinian a girl seeing all of this growing up. Um, I don't think there's any Palestinian or Palestinian household that hasn't experienced trauma because of living under under uh, Israeli occupation and apartheid. And by that, I also include Palestinians who live in Israel proper, who are Israeli citizens, and that 20% of the Israeli population are Palestinians who still live in the so-called Israel proper, or we call it the, the 48 areas. So Yaffa, mm -hmm. for example, the city that I'm named after, is in 48. I'm not allowed to go to Yaffa. Uh, my name is Yaffa, but because I carry an I West Bank ID, a green ID, I'm not allowed, Israel doesn't allow me to uh, go to Jerusalem or to Yaffa and, and what have you. Um, so basically when, when I say trauma applies to everybody, it applies to also Palestinians, not just in, in the West Bank or Gaza, or, but also to Palestinians in the diaspora, uh, Palestinian Absolutely. refugees, Palestinians who were born to parents who come from the diaspora and never been to Palestine. Absolutely, because you see it in survivor's guilt. Absolutely. You know, them trying to help. And even when it comes to uh, social media, like I remember even just seeing what uh, the events that happened in May of 2021, where uh, people were going to IG Live on a lot of content creators and they're actually seeing the explosions happen and they're having secondary trauma from those experiences. So it's, it's definitely something that affects not just the people there. Obviously, it affects them in a higher proportion, and there's no, there's no question about that. But everyone is affected at the end of the day. Absolutely. And this is um, what, what is referred to as intergenerational trauma. So uh, similar to the indigenous people uh, in Canada who, uh, you know, um, you have a lot of indigenous people who didn't go to residential schools, for example, but they still experience the intergenerational trauma that their ancestors and grandparents and parents have gone through. Um, so trauma is born, you know, can be uh, born and also experience um, uh, firsthand or passed down through intergenerational trauma. And, you know, uh, for us dealing in, in Palestine, again, this is the only thing that I knew prior yeah. to coming here. So. Uh, having to stop to, for, for checkpoints and improve my ID was a normal or is still, you know, uh, a normalized act, even though nothing about it is normal. Um, being woken up in the middle of the night by um, a bunch of sol completely and fully armed military soldiers um, with um, M16s and machine guns uh, pointed at you while you're in your bed taking your mom or your dad um, um, to, to prison. That was part of my everyday life in Palestine. So I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know it was trauma until coming, I came to Canada. And I remember one of my first shocks was, first of all, the uh, massive amount of space there is in Canada. In Canada. I was going <laughs> to ask you what surprised you about it when you came here. <laughs> Secondly, the first time I ever crossed by land yeah. from in a car, one province, province to the next, um, I believe we were driving from Alberta to Saskatchewan. Um, and my previous partner at the time was driving and he goes, Yafa, we're about to enter Saskatchewan, you know, and I reached to get my passport. And he looks at me and he says, what are you doing? And I said, oh, isn't there a checkpoint? So, you know, that was one of the, um, I think for him too, one of the most fundamental examples of, because he was shocked too, that I thought that I'm expected to face a, I was expecting to face a checkpoint uh, just because we're entering a new province. So, you know, um, this is slowly when you start being in another place like here or anywhere else in the world that's not under military occupation, then I started, you know, realizing, 
wow, you know, like nothing about the life that we live in. I mean, we all, always knew it was violence. We always knew it was military occupation. We've always, you know, um, longed for liberation and freedom, but didn't really understand what freedom meant, um, really, what freedom is until I experienced it here. I love that. I love the fact that you, you have one experience and one lived experience. And when you came here and you thought it was normal when you were back, uh, back in Palestine and then you came here, you realize, no, that's not okay. And I think if people start kind of like looking at it and empathizing in the way that, let's imagine like this is, let's say Canada is Israel, right? And we cannot go to a single place without our passports or we're going to have some random people or not random, the military come in and knock on our doors in the middle of the night when we have that fear that our family might go to jail every single day when we see people lose their lives in front of us then we can start to empathize that this is not okay just because we're in one part of the world versus another mm -hmm. it doesn't justify it doesn't justify anything yeah. and and if you look at history the, the very similar stuff has happened in previous apartheid regimes like if you look at south africa um, black South Africans during South African apartheid, there were many areas that were restricted from entering and they had to show passes, right? Yeah. So after certain hours, if the apartheid police stops them or, or military persons stop them, they have to show a pass, they have to show a permit that they're allowed to be in that place at that time. And if not, they will be punished, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at the situation in Palestine, it's the exact same. Um, even our IDs are different colors uh, representing which geographic location you come from. Um, and, you know, this is, if this is not legal discrimination, I'm not really sure what is. And about the normalization, That's... Hanny, just quickly, uh, you just reminded me of um, a story about my sister when she was really, really young. Um, she actually believed because she was crying one day and she went to my mom and she said, I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to go to prison. And my mom said, why do you why do you keep thinking that you're going to prison? Uh, and she thought she actually believed that it was going to prison. It was a rite of passage. Everybody has to go through at some point when they become an adult. That is that's wild. Like to think that a child will think that's normal and it's, it's a, like you said, a rite of passage. Yeah. And it just goes to show the trauma that we face or, yeah. the, you know, the Palestinians face yeah. uh, back under the occupation and apartheid. I want to just transition this conversation into something you told me before. Mm -hmm. And that's when you came here. You didn't know English. You had yeah. to learn English. Yeah. And you didn't really know anybody. You, you said that your parents didn't even have any ties to coming to Canada. Mm -hmm. So how was it like integrating in Canadian society. Okay, uh, whoa. So I was, um, the one different thing about me coming than may, perhaps most um, newcomers or immigrants coming to Canada is that I came to an international college, right? So Lester B. Pearson College, United World College is an international campus. Um, we, at the time, there was 200 students from 88 countries. Now, the majority were Canadian because we we're in Canada, but we also had people from all over the world or students from all over the world. So that made it a little bit easier for my transition because um, I, you know, I, there were Arabs that I connected with yeah. and I could speak Arabic with. Um, uh, you know, I got along a lot with Latin Americans, with, you know, um, different kind of nationalities. And I love that because what you're saying here is that when it comes to integration, you need people that you can actually connect with, yeah. right? There's a social integration and different cultures and different ethnic communities can still make it seem like a sense of home. Absolutely, absolutely. And I was very in an in a intense cultural shock and homesickness mm -hmm. the first uh, few months of uh, coming to Canada. Like I, you know, um, I remember crying a lot. I remember my English. I mean, we learned English in school and it was decent, but not conversational like it is today, I wouldn't be able to, you know, um, just express my thoughts, uh, carry on with my tasks or whatever I needed easily. Mm -hmm. I, I, it was, I always had to make an effort, um, an extra effort, let's say. So that was frustrating. Um, 
and I remember I didn't speak to that many people um, at the time because I, you know, I was homesick and because I wasn't comfortable with the language. So that was difficult. But I think, as you mentioned, being surrounded by other uh, folks who were in the same position as well, right? Like it was yeah. their first time leaving home. We were all the same age. That really helped. And this goes back to showing like the resilience of this. And, you know, you may not be there right there and integrated but as time goes you start to you know developing these friendships and integrating mm -hmm. i want to go back into just uh talking about uh law school so you're a lawyer right now yeah yeah and we went to law school together we did yeah Yo, high five. <laughs> congratulations Yo, congrats. <laughs> 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 i know Allah send me. Oh, yeah. the stuff that we learned in law school oh my gosh um that's it feels like ages ago but it, it wasn't that Long Yo, ago. it has been a while. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Now I'm just thinking I'm getting some flashbacks. <laughs> it's uh, there's one story that I always remember, and this was in first year of law school. Mm -hmm. And essentially, what ended up happening was there was this moot. Oh yeah. That in law school, so a moot is like a mock court. Uh, for those that don't know, that encourages uh, law students to act like they are fully licensed lawyers and advocate for a case. And it's like a mock case. And then you have judges and everything. Yeah. And I remember that Yafa took part in this competition and you had a partner. And everyone usually does this with a partner. And Yafa's partner dropped out from my, from yeah. my recollection. And if I tell you how brilliant Yafa <laughs> advocacy skills were, oof. Like, mashallah, Thank that was you. awesome. And she made it all the way to the finals. Yeah. And I still remember, like, it was such an iconic moment because that was the first time yeah. that I saw Yafa and met Yafa. I think, uh, I think it was the first time I met you. Yeah. And, uh, and it just shows resilience. Like, you still power through. You know, you didn't have a partner and you still did a brilliant job. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us your experience just in general in law school and how yeah. you were able to just keep bouncing back up? Oh my goodness, it was tough, to be honest. Um, so that was, thank you for reminding me, that was one of the toughest years of my life, uh, actually, because I had just started law school, and as you know, you know and many people know, um, it's, it's a very tough program. Like, you, you know, you have to be really fully there and committed, and um, it's a tough program. Um, my mom had just been imprisoned for the first time, shortly before I started first year law school. So oh I, we were still, um, so my, yeah. And uh, it, it was something, you know, we're starting a new program with new people. It wasn't something that I could talk to, to people around me and that kind of stuff. So, so you started law school yeah. in Ottawa, in Canada. Yeah. Your mom was just imprisoned as a political prisoner yes. in Israel. Yeah. And law schools are like, for anyone who, has been to law school you can appreciate how mentally difficult that is mm -hmm. so to have that going on at the same time yeah how were you able to balance yeah. and cope and and succeed and exceed <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was tough i honestly don't know but i i don't know how i did that but i think that's been part of my journey since i got here Every time I felt even whether it be in Pearson or law school or when I did my master's or when I was in my undergrad, every time I felt, you know, um, I can't do this anymore. There's something in me that kind of said um, the Zionists and the Israeli entity wants us to fail. And Palestinians are known for valuing education um, very much because it's part of, I mean, it's kind of part of our liberation um, to be, you know, committed and to education, but also to value education. And so there's something that comes to me and says, no, they want you to fail. And then that would kind of fuel me to, to do more or to, um, to pass that period where I'm feeling really overwhelmed. So it's your passion for a cause and for the Palestinian liberation and, and just kind of knowing that, this is something that's going to help you achieve that objective. It was a challenge too. Yeah. Like for me, I took it as a challenge because I knew that, um, again, for Israel, they would love to see Palestinians not educated, um, not accomplished. They would love that, right? Like there's nothing more that they would, than they would love. So um, 
to me, it was a challenge. Um, it was part of me taking part of the liberation of Palestine, if that makes sense. It does, it does. And I just want to clarify, when you say Israel, what do you refer to in this conversation? I'm, re I'm referring to the whole entity, the whole state, the system, the everything, the, the, the Israeli entity as, as an entity, as an apartheid state, um, their policies, the way that they operate and um, on stolen Palestinian land and continue to oppress the indigenous Palestinian people and not just that, ethnically cleanse the Palestinians um, from, from their homes. And I'm happy you clarified that. And I do agree that um, when it comes to right now, when we're looking into in politics and we can criticize mm -hmm. states and we can criticize their policies and we can criticize the governments mm -hmm. and uh, and for us, even if we, you're in Canada or in the U.S., we want to improve the world. We want to improve the systems and dismantle, you know, systematic barriers and racist systems. And I think you represent that so beautifully and eloquently. Khalida Jarrar, mm -hmm. a Palestinian icon and also your mother. Yeah. And I want to just ask, how has seeing your mother's role in politics as well as in prison, change the way you see the world? Mm -hmm. um, it, it really impacted me, I, I want to say. My mom's imprisonment impacted me, impacted my sister, impacted my father fundamentally, uh, as well as many people, right? My mom is very well loved. Um, she's, you know, she's a, a figure for, for people, for, for gender equality. She's a feminist, she's a secular, she's, you know, she spent all of her life um, working for Palestinians and for political prisoners and all of that kind of stuff. So it was tough. The way that it changed my view about the world, I mean, the difference between witnessing my mom being arrested is that I was older. I was an ad a full adult, you know, in law school. Um, I wasn't a child anymore, like when they used to come and take my dad. And my dad spent, in, in, in total, 11.5 years in prison and was tortured and what, you know, the Israeli soldiers would beat him up in front of us as children, as kids, when they would come and arrest him from our house. Um, <clears throat> that trauma is different for when you experience something similar as an adult. And, um, you know, I thought I would take it easier because we're used to this, quote unquote, mm -hmm, we're used mm -hmm. to this. But no, it hit me differently because now I fully understand and realize that there is nothing normal. It's not okay. It's not okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And it made me realize how unfair um, the world can be and how cruel the world can be. And it also showed me how far um, Israel can act with impunity and go and, and do and, and commit these crimes against the Palestinian people um, without accountability and without the international community holding them accountable or doing anything about it. And you're seeing this and experiencing this and experiencing the sense of injustice mm -hmm. while you're in law school as well in Canada. Yeah. And how do you find reconciling that? Like yeah. seeing kind of like the Canadian justice system yeah. versus, you know, a system that, you know, quotes unquote suggests that it is, you know, more advanced as a government. Yeah. How do you reconcile that? So, um, First of all, my decision to go to law school came, you know, uh, partially was because of everything I've experienced in my upbringing and living under occupation and all of that kind of stuff. With the full realization and understanding from me that I'm going to law school just to get the tools to kind of continue with the work that I do and my commitment to uh, the f liberation of Palestine and oppressed people in Palestine and around the world, right? So uh, here I want to refer to Audre Lorde's famous saying that you cannot use the master's tools to destroy, to dismantle the master's house, right? So when we talk that. about the, um, the Canadian legal system, yes, it's... Um, much, much fairer and more just system than when we talk about the Israeli, um, it's not, you know, I'm going to put it in quotations, legal system or justice system, because there's nothing legal or just about it. 
That's why I put it in quotation marks. Against the Palestinians, of mm -hmm. course, it's way, uh, there's no comparison. Yeah. But we have to remember that you and I, Hani, studied common law, right? Um, we also studied um, a, a law that's rooted in colonialism. That is a product Facts. of colonial legal structures in a country that's also a settler country, which is Canada, because this is also a country that's built on indigenous lands. And uh, there were other legal systems that existed and still exist, many different ones uh, that have been now replaced by the, um, the colonial legal systems, right? So all of these, um, I think, are important things to realize. And I went to law school with that full realization. And again, getting this education and, and mm -hmm. uh, as a tool to pursue and continue with, um, with my commitment to the Palestinian liberation. I love that. And I love the fact that you acknowledge the fact that we are indigenous land mm -hmm. on indigenous lands. Yes. And I want to just know more about how do you also reconcile the fact that you are an indigenous land, you mm -hmm. are living in a settler country, yeah. and also you come from an indigenous place. How, yeah. how do you kind of like reconcile those two different uh, facts about your situation? When I first started learning about indigenous um, history in Canada, and the colonial history in Canada and residential schools and what have you. To be honest, I went, um, uh, I had a little bit of a, of a crisis, of an internal crisis, that I am benefiting and being in a role of a quote unquote settler, doing, you know, basically that puts me in a similar situation as an Israeli in, in Palestine. Um, it didn't sit well with me. Um, and I made the decision to, to study indigenous um, studies in, in Trent University at the time for that reason, because I, you know, I, I just couldn't. So I learned about the, the history here as much as I could. And then I started um, doing work around indigenous solidarity as much as I, as I could. Because again, as oppressed people, as Palestinians, we cannot, we, and we don't live in a vacuum. Oppressed people around the world must and have to be in solidarity with each other, right? We cannot pick and choose which uh, oppressions we wanna, we wanna support, right? So um, being and benefiting from yeah. the colonialism here um, made me just committed more to learning and also doing as much as I can to be an ally um, and not just to be a passive um, earner of colonialism in Canada, just to be a beneficiary. I didn't want to just be a beneficiary of, of these, even though we all are. Um, so that was a little bit challenging for me to, uh, to reconcile. And then the more mm -hmm. you know, I learned, um, the more it became clear to me my role and what my responsibilities are. Absolutely. Do you know what I find interesting? So I grew up for the most part here in Canada mm -hmm. and I never knew about the indigenous history yeah. up until law school mm -hmm. wow. to think about that. Right. Wow. It wasn't in our education system. So I was just, you know, growing up pa passively thinking that, yeah. you know, Canada came uh, just and was established and there was, you know, the indigenous people. But now you know, everyone's integrated. It was like right. this happy like um, euphoria is that the right word yeah kind of like situation but when we came to law school and we learned about residential schools and we learned about the dark history in Canada it does put um, I, w I wouldn't what is the word it would it's a responsibility right that's yes. what privilege is right we yes. all have it yes and it's how we use that privilege uh, to advance society and to do better and what I appreciate about you Yafa since I've met you and since I've known you uh, you've always been doing some great things for the community, whether it's advocating for Palestine. And right before that, you were telling me in law school, you used to volunteer in a safe house. Yeah. And can you tell us a little more about that experience? And what did you learn about yourself through that experience? Right. So um, I did work, um, volunteer work for harm reduction. So um, there was a kind of a, a group that started up in Ottawa during the um, overdose pandemic right of a lot of people overdosing and dying basically so that's why it's referred to as a pandemic because because it was 
um, and it still is mm -hmm. in parts in some parts of the world and and in Canada. So I started doing work, and that wasn't the first time, by the way. Even when I moved to Canada in 2003, I did work in Sanctuary City in Vancouver in East Hastings. Um, I did harm reduction work there as well. So um, I became involved in harm reduction work, uh, safe injection sites and, and what have you, and, and doing that type of work. In law school, it also made me deploy what I'm learning into something more concrete. I like that. I like that. And I want to just, I want to just go back into something. Um, I want to ask you, how do you define resilience? Because that is the overall theme yeah. right now. How do you define resilience right now? It is so difficult to uh, find like a word or a sentence to describe it. But for me, resilience is um, the ability to, as an oppressed person, uh, the ability to be involved in activism, in fighting oppression, in all of these things. And at the same time, being able in safe settings and other settings to also be vulnerable, to also be um, sad, to be human, to be burnt out, mm -hmm. to be depressed. Um, so those two things can exist together. Right. And I think Absolutely. because we cannot pretend that resilience is only just being strong and always being strong. Nobody can just always be strong um, if they continue to be to to experience injustice. Right. Like that just they would be a superhuman. And I have never met someone like that. And to claim that resilience is always connected to strength, I think, is an inaccurate description. So being able to kind of live both and be both, being able to um, go to a demonstration, let's say, organize, do the work, and then also be able to love and live and party and um, have, you know, the, the, the other side mm -hmm. of being human, this balance is very difficult to achieve. And I think for me, achieving that balance, which I'm still learning how to do, is the definition of resilience. I love that. And if there's like a takeaway from this conversation right now, I really hope that people remember this. It's being human, letting yourself experience everything mm -hmm. and still pushing forward. Yes. And that's something I think you embody so, uh, so beautifully. And I want to just ask and dive deeper into that. Is mm -hmm. that so you mentioned that you're still learning how to yeah. become more resilient day by day. But yeah. for someone who is going through something or they have an experience right now, what is it one piece of advice that you can give them? That it's okay not to be strong, that it's okay not to feel okay, absolutely okay, and it's part of the journey, and I think we need to um, be less harsh with ourselves. Um, it is What's not okay is to, to, to pretend that or to live life without kind of the interest or the curiosity about knowing or wanting to know that mm -hmm. is I, in my opinion that's not okay but you know um and i'm not expecting everybody to like become an activist um because activism also takes many different shapes and forms Absolutely. this is what we're doing here is a form of activism so activism can take many 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 different forms right um and people can experience it and do it in whatever, whichever way that they want. So yep. it's okay to not feel okay. And it's okay to seek help. Like it's okay to, uh, I'm a big advocate of therapy, especially for people who experience trauma and PTSD. And I know there's stigma around mental health and, and all of that kind of stuff. But we, we can't continue. We cannot actually be productive mm -hmm. if we don't take care of our mental health. And this is something that what I meant, I'm, I'm still working on and trying to, because uh, yeah, I, I haven't mastered that skill and that ability and I'm always learning and I'm always making mistakes. And I love how humble you are about this stuff because like for someone like myself seeing you, you know, you are this, you know, strong, independent human who's accomplished so much and continues to accomplish and is, um, has also become kind of like as, as in the same light as your mom, a symbol for Palestine and fighting oppression at the same time knowing that you're still a human being and you're still uh, coping and struggling just like everyone else. 
Oh, yeah. And I think when we start to understand that everyone has their own story and their own, it's when we, we become less harsh on ourselves as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, yeah. And uh, that was, that's actually one of the mis, um, re- misrepresentations or misunderstandings when people meet me or when they see me. They'll be like, oh, you're strong. So when something bad happens, like when my mom gets arrested or what have you, people would say, this is terrible, Yafa. Um, we, we sympathize with you but you're strong. And that hit me a little bit because I'm like, yes, but no, in this incident, I'm not strong. Right now, it's my mom who is in prison. So I don't even have to be strong for that. It's okay not to be strong. Mm -hmm. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be depressed about it. Um, So even strong people or strong appearing people and strong people, um, you know, they also... Uh, feel weakness and feel sadness and I think we need to embrace that there's nothing wrong about that this is actually part of we're human yeah we're human we're we're human and I love the fact that you acknowledge that and you embrace it and it uses you use that to empower you and I want to go and just I want to talk about something and I um, I know last year uh, you've experienced loss with your sister passing Mm -hmm. and I want to know how is it like experiencing loss Oh, um, I lost my sister Suha July 11th of 2021. And it's nothing like I've experienced before in terms of, you know, we went through violence and arrests and loss. I've experienced loss before, but losing my sister was something else. It's um, I can easily say the hardest thing I've ever been through. And I continue to go through that hardship. Um, and especially that she passed while mm-hmm. my mom was in prison. And so, and I was here and she was in Palestine. Um, so that made it even just brought it into a completely different level of an experience yeah you were in canada your mom was in was still in prison at that time yeah and from what i remember reading in the news they wouldn't even let her have a compassionate visit yeah and your mom wrote a beautiful uh poem that mm-hmm. uh and i i wish i had the poem right there but can you share that experience and what it what that trauma also felt like when you were there. Um, so uh, I, um, I also couldn't attend the funeral because at the time my Palestinian passport was expired and I didn't have my Canadian citizenship yet. Even though I've been here for since 2003, I received my citizenship a few months after. Um, and then I was able to go. So, um, and my mom was in prison and we have no way of communicating because we can't call them. They don't have phones or anything. The only way to communicate with my mom while she's in prison is through the radio, which is something Soha and I used to do every Friday morning. Um, we would wake, I would wake up super early Friday morning and call into the radio station back home, which is the only radio station that they can listen to in prison. And mm-hmm. there was a prisoner's uh, family's program on the radio station every Friday so families of prisoners of Palestinian political prisoners and we have over 6,000 of them um, would call in and just say things say their news to their loved ones inside prison so Suha and I and my dad every Friday that was our routine every Friday is to call Um, what did you tell your mom at that time so she had found out before because it was all over the news um it was all over the news in palestine and in many parts of the world uh, when she passed so she heard unfortunately she heard on the radio before the lawyer or the prison administration could tell her um and i i don't want to imagine now that i'm a mother as of six weeks ago um Congrats, by the way. Thank you. And actually, my daughter was born July 14th, 2022. My sister passed away July 11th, 2021. So almost exactly a a year 
after Soha passed, um, my daughter Celia Soha was born. So I feel there's something there. But um, until I became a mother myself, I didn't know what. There's no way I would have known what it would feel like to lose a, a child. Um, and especially being under those circumstances inside Israeli prisons. But from what my mom told me, the other women prison, political prisoners, they were extreme because they also knew Soha, so, you know, from visits and from the radio. And um, they basically, the way that they showed up for her was absolutely amazing. Um, it's, it's tragic to know that something like that happened and um, and someone couldn't go and have a visit. At the same time, yeah. it just shows the sense of community wherever we go, mm-hmm. whether it's in prison or whether it's in yeah. schools and people showing up. Absolutely, absolutely. And even the way people showed up for me um, after Soha passed and for my father, it's overwhelming, overwhelming in a very good way. Um, and honestly, it's partially how we're able to continue today. Um, I still ask my question, this question, I ask myself this question every day. I, I don't, like, Soha and I were inseparable, inseparable. Um, we were more than sisters, really. Like it was a very, it was, um, part of me died, really. That's, I, I hear you and my condolences. And Thank I remember, you. I remember Soha. Uh, the first time we actually did meet, and we were just talking about this, wasn't at the moot. It was uh, yeah. when we were at uh, like a pre-law school par- a party or event. Yeah, yeah. And we were all having a good time. And Suha was so full of life and yeah. just a good time. Yeah. And I do remember, uh, I think I, the first question I asked you guys was, are you twins? Yeah. Because <laughs> you guys look so much alike we and do, you have yeah. very similar yeah, uh, that's tendency. true. And, and and actually having Soha there f- with me in first year law school is what got me through law school. Um, and mm-hmm. speaking of the moot, um, when I made it to the final, actually for the moot itself, I, I never I didn't own a suit, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have a suit. Um, and the reality is a first year law school. Now, how many suits do you have? <laughs> many. I didn't have a suit. And I remember I didn't have time to go shop for a suit. I also didn't have that much money and Suha either. So I remember Suha because I was studying or preparing or something. I didn't have time. I was stressed out. I said, I don't know what I'm going to wear. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, and she ran to the Rideau Center in Ottawa and she bought me a suit and a shirt. So what I was wearing is what Suha got me. That is so nice. And, uh, and it goes to show her character as well. Yeah. And your relationship between yeah. the both of you. Yeah. And I remember after um, after her pass, her passing, you celebrated her life. Yeah. You created an event. Yeah. Can you tell us a little more about that event and why you decided to honor her memory that way? Yeah. Um, we created celebrations of life for Soha, multiple ones. Um, and I... I chose to call it celebration of life, which is not something we do as Arabs, you know, when someone dies and, you know, it's, it's more of a, we call it a mourning house. We mourn mm-hmm. and I mourned and we, we, we do mourn our dead and we should, you know. Um, but I also wanted to create a celebration and do the things that, because Suha loved life so much. Um, and I knew this is what she would have liked. So. Um, she loved seafood so I've never met someone who loves seafood more than she does actually like it was a problem for her how much she loved (laughs) seafood seafood's good (laughs) so I um, we got oysters and everything that she loves crabs and you know and had a celebration of life where people talked about Soha remembered Soha um, how she wants to be remembered and how you know and, and we had one in Palestine as well um, and people came and sang, and uh, so I used to also dance with the pose with the fire, and we had a pose oh, for wow. performance. Um, she, her workplace, uh, she worked at Al Haq, human rights organization Al Haq, in Palestine, and um, her work organized also another celebration of life for her, where 
donations were gathered for the Humane Society for Animals because Tuha loved animals as well, you know. Uh, she, her cat, Ajwe, uh, he's still... Ajwe, what a nice, Ajwe, a nice name. Yeah, <laughs> he still lives with my parents and he's so attached to my mom and dad now, but it was very attached to her. So we, we did the things that Suha loved. Um, and for us, this was a way of coping kind of with her loss, even though there isn't really an easy way to cope with that kind of loss. And that was going to be my next question is that how does someone, because um, I don't think you can ever really recover from loss, but how does no. someone cope with loss? Yeah. Grief um, never goes away. Ever. And it never gets smaller. So imagine grief, and this was a helpful way for me. Because um, for me, you know, I, I still go to therapy, and I think everybody should go to therapy. Absolutely. And I went to group grief group sessions mm -hmm. where, and that really helped as well, where people who also lost loved ones share their stories and that kind of stuff. And the most useful thing for me to kind of understand grief, because... You know, people would say it would get easier with time. It's not that it gets easier. It's not that you forget. It's not that you get used to it. All of these are misrepresentations of how grief happens. Um, let's assume grief is, is a circle this big and you are the, the square around it. The circle stays the exact same size, but the square around it is the one that gets kind of bigger. And that's really how it feels. Because the intensity is still the same. Um, I like the, that, that visualization of it because it's not that the grief and the pain goes away. Is no. that there's a lot of things surrounding it and your other lived experiences yeah. Yeah. and, you know, new life you know, being born as well. Yes, yes. But you still have to every day still have, like, it's still... You still live with it and oh, yeah. navigate your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a very healthy perspective of looking at it. And uh, I just want to say, like, once again, that just hearing your conversation and hearing your story, it just goes back to showing resilience, strength, uh, self-awareness. And uh, I really do believe that the people who are listening to this today are going to walk away knowing that they can be resilient as well. And resilience is not this one definition of someone being strong or someone doing this. It's mm -hmm. being human and yeah. learning to keep pushing forward and using your pain to advocate mm -hmm. and to really change the way you the world is, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to thank you once again, Yafa, 